0: Thank you, Scott, and thanks for that great story about you sacrificing your body (laughs) to move the podium. Hey, good morning, church family. I'm Pastor Ed. Good morning out there online and in the fellowship hall over there. Uh, We're all together in spirit. So we're in Psalm 73, as Scott said, and if you don't have a bulletin yet, uh, Aaron is back there. He's got the basket and he can hand it to you. Why don't you raise your hand if you need a bulletin and a pen? I know sometimes we forget to grab them. We see some hands. He's going to get those to you right now. Thanks, Aaron, for doing that. It's good to have those, to see what's going on, and uh, to follow along. And, my, and the sermon outline is, is there, if that helps you follow along. That's great. Open your Bibles to, to Psalm 73, if you don't already, or turn on your apps. Uh, it's a long psalm. We're going to be in it today. Uh, and to begin, let me get you thinking, we can all think of... A believer in Jesus Christ that we know who has been obviously blessed by God, right? For example, Billy Graham. Here's just one example. He's the most well-known evangelist in the last century. Billy Graham, I mean, pretty much everybody here has heard of him. You know who, who Billy Graham is. If you don't, Billy Graham spoke to tens of millions of people. He was highly regarded by almost everyone. He was friends with presidents, celebrities, kings, and queens. He had many of the desirable things of this world, and he enjoyed a long and prosperous life until he died at a nice age of 99 years old, surrounded by friends and loved ones. Believers often assume that this should be the experience of every one of us. We should enjoy the good things in life, we should have happy homes, happy families, good incomes, painless health, and not experience any disasters in life. Did we think about this? Somebody asks, has that been the experience of your life and every believer in Jesus that you know? No, of course not. That hasn't been. We have not always enjoyed health and wealth and prosperity, every single one of us. More than likely, we have faced problems. We have faced challenges. We have had disasters happen in our lives. To make matters worse, we're surrounded by people all all over the place, all over the world, who don't love God and yet whose lives are filled with wealth and health and beauty and prosperity and power. Our question today is what do we do when God seems unfair? Psalm 73 addresses this today. And here's why this is so important. Because we all try to figure this out at one time or another, or oftentimes we wrestle with this injustice that we see all around the world, all around us in our own lives. How to make sense of all the unfairness that we see as we try to know God and grow in God, we, we need to understand. But more than just understanding it goes deeper than that inside of you and me, brothers and sisters. We also have a natural anger at injustice. You can see that in children. There's, just, there's a, a desire that's a natural in us that we want fairness. And there's a natural anger when we see injustice. And sometimes that anger can be directed at God. Now listen to this. We might not even realize that being mad at God because of the injustices, is a big reason that we might be so miserable. Psalm 73 is another very honest text, extremely real passage in Scripture. And it's why I've chosen this one as part of our Psalms series Seasons of Renewal, Walking with God in the Psalms, because we need this message that Psalm 73 has for us today. Because you know what? The spiritual problems you may be facing right now or have in the past or will be in the future, the spiritual problems that you're facing, a lack of faith, a lack of trust, it could be maybe that worship doesn't do anything for you. Maybe you've not gotten anything out of your personal devotions for a long time. Maybe you stopped having them. Maybe you'd rather be a 100 other places than in church right now, or even just one other place than in the presence of God. It could be Behind all of that, that's because you're mad at God. Mad at the unfairness of life. Psychologists will tell you that the, there is nothing that we deny more than anger. Okay, we might be angry at God because we think he's unfair. We might not even realize it. So, what do we do? Well, today we enter Psalm 73. And we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us and to speak to us through his word, which he does and he will do if you ask him. That's what we're going to look at in Psalm 73. Before we begin, let me do my little quick section about the Psalms. I've been enjoying this uh, each week as we start. For today, it's authors, authorship of the different Psalms. In Psalm 1, I talked about all the unique features of the book of Psalms, how it's different than all the other books of the Bible. One of those, it's written by more authors than any other book. It's written by several different authors. Of course, David wrote the most with 73 of the 150. And there's this man named Asaph that's in second place with 12 psalms that are credited to him, including Psalm 73, our psalm today. And then there are several others and 50 that are unknown, written by unknown authors. So this is the first non-David psalm of our series, which Rick pointed out today. And, but I do want to say, here's how I'm going to tie that together, Rick. Asaph was a fellow musician of David's that probably wrote and performed along with David many times. The books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, tell about Asaph. He was the chief of the Levites, appointed to lead worship before the Ark of the Covenant. So that's a pretty high position. That's the top worship pastor of the time. His temple singers were known as the sons of Asaph, and you'll see them mentioned throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Psalms. Asaph's Psalms are heavily influenced by David's Psalms, but they're different. And it's that different perspective. It's fun to notice Asaph, he has a unique perspective, a little bit different than David's, on God and on life. And I believe that's going to serve us well today as we look at Asaph's writings about the world and about God and about faith and about our lives. And particularly about unfairness. And so here is Asaph, just like you and me. He's trying to worship God, and he's trying to love God and grow in God, and yet he's observing all the injustices in the world all around, and he's trying to make sense of all this, and we can relate to him there. Why do the wicked people prosper, he asks. Why does God seem unfair? He's wondering, does it pay to follow God at all, or does it not pay to follow God? The answer is hang in there. Let's wrestle with this one. We're going to see that God's economy is big, and it is good, and it's eternal. This is a worldview psalm about justice, both now in this life and in eternity. So let's wrestle along with Asaph about when God seems unfair as we go through life. That's point number one, and I've used that word wrestle because that's what it is. That's what this process is to to... to arrive at the truth. So let's wrestle along with Asaph. We're going to wrestle with it, but what we need to do ultimately, we're going to see in the first 16 verses is wrestle past human doubt of God's justice. We see the world humanly. And we're going to wrestle past human doubt of God's justice Lord willing in three stages as we look at the first 13, 16 verses first, the first stage is when my belief and experiences conflict. Okay, here's what I mean by that. As we look at the first three verses, my belief and my experiences conflict. Okay, verse one, my belief is that God is good. God is good. Verse one says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I believe that with all my might, God is good. God is good to his covenant people which was Israel before Christ, it's us, the church, now, to those who are pure in heart, not by our own good works, but by Jesus' purity, which he has fully clothed us in. Truly, God is good to us. Now, that's my belief. My experiences, on the other hand, conflict with that. Verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that's the second stage of our wrestling through all of this. Join Asaph in this stage when my doubt causes envy. Verses four through 12, Asaph's gonna go on a very lengthy description of how he perceives the injustice in the world when the wicked are prospering so much. Let's look at the first Three verses of that, verses four through six. The prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They are so blessed and have life so good and have arisen to so much power that they are prideful, prideful to the point of violence. And this could be from the bully's attack at school to somebody who's an agitator of yours at the workplace. They're proud and they're violent. They attack you. It could be injustices and prejudice judgments. It could be unjust warfare. This pride that leads to violence. It's all over the world. How about our persecuted brothers and sisters in countries and nations that are in opposition to the gospel of Jesus? I mean, how we read stories from people all over the world who are imprisoned because of their faith. They're taken from their families. They're thrown in jail. They're thrown on the ground and kicked to death. Their tongues are cut out. These stories are out there all over the world by God-haters that are prideful to the point of violence. How must our persecuted brothers and sisters view these verses right here? But we can all relate. There's plenty of injustices and unfairness to go around. So let's continue. Verses seven through nine. Asaph's not done. He says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Again, this is a poem here, okay? So we, that's, a, that's a sign of wealth. Uh, in much of history where food is scarce, fatness is a sign of wealth. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. I'll continue, verses 10 through 12. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. That means they have a large following. They're very influential. How can this be? It's not fair. And they say, verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Verse 11 is kind of the height of their arrogance, where they would shake their fist at God and say, We don't need God. And who is God? He doesn't know anything. And so, Asaph struggles that these people are in so much power and have such a great and easy life. That's unfair. So, just to recap, Why did Asaph struggle with the prosperity of the wicked? They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They look great. They feel great. They have all this power. And we see that they are abusive to people. They are proud and they're arrogant. But I want you to notice that it's not the sin that's most troubling to Asaph at this time. That's not what's breaking his heart right now and causing him to cry out to God. It's the way that the wicked prosper as they commit evil while he suffers for what's doing for while he's doing what's right. That's what is bothering him right now. And that comes out in the next four verses and pay attention here because we relate to this feeling that Asaph's got expressing right now more than we think we do. This is the third stage of wrestling past human doubts to get to God's view when injustice causes self-pity. Continue along with him now. He's just talking about the wicked increasing in, in riches. And then in verse 13, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You get this again, this is poetry. He's saying, I've been so innocent, I'm washing my hands in it. I don't deserve anything bad to happen to me. All in vain I've kept, this is, he's, expressing his feelings here. He continues verses 14 through 16. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. There in those last two verses, 15 and 16, those are a little confusing. What he's saying is if I had spoken my thoughts out loud, my true thoughts, if I had spoken them, I would have Affected other people's faith, my thoughts were that bad. That's what he's saying. Asaph is undone by the injustice that he sees, and he's expressing this for us. He tells us, I'm trying to live a good life, but I'm having a lousy life. While people who are not trying to live a good, godly life are having a wonderful life, and it's not fair. And I'll say again, we relate to this more than we think we do, and I want to explain why. And it's because we're all infected by moralism. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's like legalism, a little bit different. We're infected by both. Let me explain what moralism is. Here's a definition on the screen. Moralism is believing that there are rules and that you are saved by keeping them. Let's really focus on this. It's a belief that there are rules, and you're saved by keeping them, or you're valued by how much you keep them. Now, humans are all naturally wired to do this, every single one of us. We're naturally wired to say, whether it's a religious set of rules that we follow, that's why there's so many religions in the world, we say, We're, here's the rules according to my religion, and and we're saved by following those rules. And even if you don't believe in any kind of a religion, those people do the same thing. They come up with some kind of sense of right and wrong and rules and say, I follow those, so therefore I'm a good person. So I'll be okay, I'm saved, I'm a good person because I follow these rules. Christians need to battle this constantly. We think that because we have been good, or because we have obeyed the rules, that God must bless us now with all this fun stuff that we want. This is in the heart of every single one of us. And if he doesn't, that's not fair. That's the trap of moralism. Friends, God's blessings do not come to us because they are owed to us, but because of God's grace alone. We don't want what we deserve from God, the holy God. And we need to repent for believing that God will owe us justice on our terms if we just do enough. Now, God's economy and his plan that he's working through in the world and his grace and his love, all of those are much bigger than our own present small sense of justice. And knowing this will keep us from being spun out of control by the injustices that we see all over the world, like Asaph. He was losing control, his grip on life, because of this. But Asaph eventually realizes this, and we need to, too. So here's the process that Asaph goes through, and I just want just to clarify or just state this very thing. I want to tell you that this process that he's going through is okay. Here's the process. He sees all the injustices around it breaks his heart or it makes him mad, okay? That's okay. It's okay to be angry at injustices, things that are unfair, and he calls it out. Yeah, now, sure, he's complaining about it, okay, but he's calling it out. He's not stuffing it. He's not just letting it depress him and ruin his life. He's being real, and we need to be too. He's identifying it, and he's crying out to God, why are things this way? And I just want to encourage you. This is in Scripture so we can follow this. Go ahead and cry it out to God. He wants you to like any loving father would. But we don't stop there. See, that's the thing. We don't stop there and just staying in self-pity. That's not beneficial to any of us. So we don't dwell there. We move on. Now, let's see how Asaph does that, how we can do that. After verse 16, we come to what we've talked about the last two weeks, as the fulcrum of the psalms. If you weren't here, the fulcrum is that balancing point on a teeter-totter, which, makes, which brings balance. Okay, and every psalm with a circular uh, thought process that the ancient poets wrote with, there's many points made, and it leads to this fulcrum, this balancing point. And now, for the rest of the psalm, we're gonna go back the other direction, and things are gonna be put into balance And make sense and bring resolution to the problem okay so that's where we have arrived right here we're here for the resolution to this problem let's look at it how does asaph escape from his anger how does he regain his footing that he said he's lost how is he corrected from moralism from being trapped in that self-pity in this small thinking about god how is he rescued from that this brings us to point two We've been wrestling past a human version, a view of doubt, of God's justice, and now we set out to, point two, arrive at God's view of justice. And this is where it all makes sense, and where peace comes, and where trust comes, and where victory comes, arriving at God's view of justice. So let's see how Asaph gets there, how he gets out of his funk, how he gets out of his despair. As we look at the rest of this psalm, we're going to see there are four steps in this process. Let's walk with Asaph through them. First is seeing the bigger perspective. We need to get out of our own little perspective and start seeing there's more to the world. Present, in the past, in the future, in heaven, there's more to the world than our little perspective. Asaph was dwelling in envy and self-pity up through verse 16 because of what he saw until, verse 17, until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Okay, Asaph chose not to stay and dwell in the doubt and the misunderstanding and the envy and the self-pity that he was crying out to God. He chose to get out, and we can too. So how does it all begin? Verse 17, here's where it begins, by entering God's sanctuary, by entering God's presence, by seeking God's face by seeking God's wisdom. We've been this is a recurring theme in the Psalms that we've been studying over the last several weeks. We keep seeing this kind this seeking of God to know God and to understand and dwell with God and to be with God and to and to worship God. That's where everything starts changing. Is that a major pursuit of your life? Worshiping allows us to meet God, and when we meet God and his Holy Spirit working in us, our perspective changes. We see the world in a whole different light. So when Asaph came into God's presence, he started seeing things from a bigger perspective, from God's perspective. And what does he start seeing clearly? As we continue, starting in verse 8, he sees That the wicked don't stay healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and happy forever. They don't. Then I discerned their end. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In the end, if they don't repent, if they don't repent, they will fall. They will be judged by God. In the first half of the psalm, Asaph suffers a severe case of a small view of reality. And he sees the unfairness of it all. But when he enters God's presence... Humbly enters God's presence. God opens his eyes, and he starts seeing the big picture for the first time. And, oh, friends, how much this helps us understand that there are bigger things than our own lives and our own worries and the things going on right at this moment. And, oh, how much this helps us trust God and be settled in our lives and encouraged again. So let's take this first step with Asaph. See the bigger perspective. Uh, and that starts by entering God's presence. We're all here today. Open your heart to God's word right now. And then identify all the negatives that you wrestle with. The, you know, I'm not going to give a long list. I'm gonna, you know what they are. What are the un, injustices and unfairness that affects you, that causes you to be unsettled or angry or mad at God? Bring them to God and seek to see the bigger picture of what he may be doing from them. Through them. And then take the second step along with Asaph. Repenting of any anger and ignorance that you have toward God. This is what he does. And I would encourage us all, myself included, to follow this next step. Repenting of the anger and ignorance that we have. Verses 21 and 22, he continues, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, this is a poet's way of saying, I was angry. When I was angry, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Have you been mad at God? We need to repent of that. And here's why. The Bible, all throughout, says that God is good. 1 John says that not only is God good, God created good, he's the author of good, He is the giver of all good things, and there is no evil in him at all. There's no injustice or unfairness in him at all. So if we are mad at God for the unfairness that we see in the world, that means we ourselves have been unjust to God, and we need to repent of that because that's not fair. That's not a good place for us to be. So we move on from that and realize, okay, God is good. And so the third step then in arriving at the peace that comes from God's view of justice is to be grateful for grace. So here again, he says, I was angry at God. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And then verses 23 and 24, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel God has never given up on me, has never given up on you. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Despite being a beast towards God and accusing him of unfairness and being ignorant and being angry, God continually gives us what we don't deserve. And that's what grace is. And God lavishes it on us. He continually gives us what we don't deserve. He continually is with us. He continually provides us comfort. Here and now. He's continually with us and guiding us. And verse 24 talks about future grace, everything that's awaiting for us in heaven. Even though we've been so bad to God, all the glories in heaven are waiting for us, and that's a lot. So repenting of anger and being grateful for grace. Man, God is good. He is good to us. Okay, now Asaph Ask the ultimate question in the fourth and final step in the process. And that is arriving at renewed faith in God's view. And here we go. Asaph's gonna realize the truth of what's going on. This is a great memory verse. I'm I'm pretty sure some of you have memorized these verses, verses 25 and 26. Whom I in heaven but you, he comes to realize. Whom I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And now Asaph's journey has come to the best place it can possibly be, to see the goodness of God, to enjoy fellowship with God despite all circumstances, unfairness, and injustice. He's arrived, and God's given him that peace. I want to tell two brief Christian stories that did not turn out, to the human perspective anyway, uh, so great, like Billy Graham's story in the here and now, the present time, in this life. But they will turn out that great in heaven. If you've ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs, that's a book filled with collections of stories about martyrs in Christ who who share the same. There's lots of stories. You can ask most missionaries overseas right now, and they could tell you more stories like this as well. Stories that don't end up like Billy Graham in the here and now, but they will in eternity. But I have two stories right here that I want to share with you that I like. The first is an English missionary, Alan Gardner, in the year 1851. He was on a ship on his way to South America. He was supposed to open a mission there, but instead his ship was wrecked on an island off the coast of South America. He died there, but he lived for quite a while with the survivors first. Eventually, they all died a painful, terrible death of hunger and thirst. So everything went wrong for him. He never got to the mission field. He died far away from his family in agony. He prayed, oh, Lord, rescue us, but no one ever came. They all died. Later, his body was found, and he had a journal. The last thing he wrote in his journal was Psalm 3410 which said, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack anything good. The last line he wrote in his journal before he died, underneath that verse was this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. What? He was dying of hunger and thirst. With a lot, with all this disappointment, after giving his entire life to God, he was shipwrecked on this island, and yet, just like Asaph, Gardner arrived at God's view and was able to say, "There are injustices in life, but God is always good." The other story is of Joni Erickson. Joni Erickson Tata, now. And many of you are probably familiar with Joni's story. She became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident in her youth. And she has spent all her life since in a wheelchair. She's an amazing person. She said she doesn't mind the inconvenience of losing her hands and legs for 60 years if it will help her know God and serve Him better. And she asks us, have you considered the potential glory our lives can give to God if we could overcome our anger and in our wheelchair, our wheelchair, whatever that is, remain faithful to him? That's her question for us. Now, why isn't she angry that her hands and legs were taken from her in her youth? Here's why. She went into the sanctuary, like Asaph, into the presence of God. She sought understanding. She cried out to God, and she saw the bigger perspective. She asked the ultimate question that Asaph asks eventually, whom have I in heaven but you? And that's when she realized this, and this is her quote, what she realized there when she was asking God, I love this. She says, Jesus Christ was slain for me. He became a beast slain so that I wouldn't be slain for my beastliness. Just like Asaph said, I was a beast. I love Joni's perspective. Jesus became the beast who died for me so that I wouldn't be slain for my beastliness towards God. It's all about God's grace. And she asks, Are you right now in your wheelchair? Are you right now in your wheelchair, this thing that has crippled you with a sense of unfairness and injustice and being mad at God, the thing that you might be tempted to think, this is unfair? Read these verses again. Memorize these verses, verses 25 and 26. But now we can join Asaph's arrival at the ultimate view, God's view, in our conclusion, the last two verses, verses 27 and 28. This is the conclusion of it all. And I'm going to actually to bring our next steps today into these final two verses as we conclude. We have arrived. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Right here in these final two verses, we see our conclusion and we see our next steps right here that I want to encourage everyone to take right now. Being near to God is the first one. Are you near God today or are you far away from him? Everybody's got a different answer to that question. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive his new life that only he can give you, spiritual life that only he can give, then you are far away from God. And you see God's judgment guaranteed for our sins. And so my first encouragement to you is to consider trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins right now. He's brought you here today. He's given you the gospel which is the good news that Jesus has already died on the cross, to pay for your sins, to offer you everything he's got. That is how we become so close to God. He becomes in you, and you in him, and will be forever. So I encourage you to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today. And if you need to know more about that, that's what the communication card is there. You can turn that in with your name. If you do that right now, trust Jesus as your Savior so we can celebrate that with you, walk through discipleship for the rest of our lives together. Or if you want to talk to somebody, fill out that communication right now. I'll just leave it between you and the Holy Spirit if that's um, what you're going to do today. For those of us who have trusted Jesus and have been forgiven of everything that we'll ever do wrong, maybe you're not really near God right now. Uh, Maybe you are. That's great. Uh, We all can be, and we all should be, and there's no reason not to be as a church. Every single one of us right now Draw near to God in the face of any injustices and unfairness in the world. doesn't matter. Here we are. I've written a little prayer. This isn't, I just want to read this. We don't need to pray it. I'm just going to read this. And I, and I want you to agree with it, if you would, as a church right now. Let's say this to God. Just agree with it in your own heart right now as we conclude today. Here it goes. We fully agree that the wicked often prosper. We fully admit that believers do suffer and that life seems unfair, but we refuse to limit our view to see what we see in this earthly life. God, give us a sense of your perspective, a sense of confidence in your sovereign control. Help us identify and reject all doubt, envy, self-pity, anger, and ignorance in us. Overwhelm us in your presence from right here in our wheelchair of of unfairness. In Jesus' name, amen. And now as these verses are still on the screen here, I want to make one final conclusion. But for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. And that is the spirit and the joy that we're all going to share as we continue to fellowship as a church. And even today, as we go out to the picnic in just a bit. That's that's the joy we get to share today. But do you notice there's another purpose that goes beyond today? It goes into Monday through Saturday now for the rest of the course of your week, of your life. And that is, we don't just keep this to ourselves. Look at that final, final statement. gives a purpose statement that goes beyond this fellowship. That is, that I may tell of all your works. This is the burden that we have. Jesus taught us to be compassionate to the people that sit under Jesus' judgment right now. Can we have that burden and that compassion to tell the world about Jesus the Savior this week? Would you commit to doing that? in whatever way he calls you and whatever divine appointments he makes, whatever influence you have in your workplace, in your family, your neighborhood, remember this is the final purpose, why he has saved us. For our joy, yes, but to proclaim that joy to everybody that's in our lives. Let's pray and give these things to God, these commitments to God. Look forward to a great rest of the day. And then we're gonna sing a really perfect song, about the greatest work of God the gospel of his son Jesus which earns salvation for all who will believe in him. Uh, let's pray and commit these things to God and then sing and then we'll go to the picnic. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this text which is really released me over the years in this very thing that's deep inside of every human being, the sense of unfairness and the sense of anger at unrighteousness. I pray that we would repent of directing that anger towards you who who is the the source of goodness, the definition of goodness. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen and empower us now as we walk through a sin-fallen world, trying to make sense of it, and then being light to the world. I pray that you'll increase the joy that we share as a as a local body of your covenant people, I pray that we'll be tireless on our mission to tell of all your good works. We thank you again so much for what your spirit's going to do in this church and in every person in it. Bless us now as we sing and, and then go on from here with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.